0: So I'm glad to see all you guys here this morning, and I'm excited that I have the opportunity to preach God's Word. Um, I have a cold, so pardon my squeaky voice at times. Um, I'll try and make it through. I have my cup of water, so in case I need to hydrate up, I'm ready to go. It's a cold. I thought it was smoke, and it turned out to be a cold. So, um, So go ahead and open up your Bible to Psalm 9 this morning. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 9, and if you need a Bible... There should be one in the pew rack in front of you, um, so feel free to use that. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, uh, feel free to take that Bible home. That's why we have them there, so that everyone can have the Word of God who wants the Word of God. Um, so turning to Psalm 9 this morning, for those, of us, for those of you who don't know, we're going through a series called uh, Summer in the Psalms, in which we started at Psalm 1 back in the beginning of July. And we're slowly making our way through the book of Psalms Uh, Usually one psalm at a time, maybe two psalms at a time if we get lucky and they work well together. Um, But it's going to take at least a few summers to get through this massive book of psalms. Um, But I truly enjoy diving into the book of psalms because in it we see this intimate and the normally hidden details of a person's life being shared through prayers and songs to the Lord. And reading through the psalms, It shows us what a life of faith in God looks like day in and day out. David, who writes a majority of the Psalms, he has his highs and he has his lows. He has his moments of greatness, his moments of triumph, and he has his times of utter failure and disgrace. And through all of it, we get to see and learn about God and God's character and God's faithfulness in the lives of David and the other people as they live a life of faith. So in our psalm this morning, we're going to see a man, David, who rejoices in the Lord with all his being. And this rejoicing is not because David is awesome or anything of that sort. David's rejoicing because he knows the one true, almighty, and all-powerful God. As we work our way through this psalm, we will see David expounding upon God being this ultimate just and righteous judge for man. And we will also see him going into detail about God being a gracious refuge who is both David's and our source of salvation. And this is another thing that I love about preaching through a book of the Old Testament. We get to wrestle with this tension of who God is. A God who is both just and gracious. And you know, for some reason, God gets a bad rap. He gets a bad label in the Old Testament. I'm sure you've heard people say, or even maybe you've personally thought, that God in the Old Testament is just this ruthless and vengeful tyrant. But in the New Testament, man, he's just a nurturing and loving and peaceful God. And he would never punish someone for their sin. And I know I've had similar thoughts and I've wrestled with the idea of God being both judge and redeemer, a God who both hates sin and yet dies for our sin, a God who wipes out wicked nations, and yet as 2 Peter 3, 9 says, the Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Throughout the Bible, both Old and New Testament, we learn of a God that doesn't fit into the simple boundaries and limits that we set up in our minds. And as we'll see this morning, and I encourage you to read more of the Old and New Testament yourself on your own time, that we should let God's word shape our ideas of who he is, not what we've heard from others or what we've come up with personally in our own minds. So let's pray this morning and get into Psalm 9 to see what God's word has to say about who he is and who we are as people in relation to him. Father, we are grateful that we can join together this morning to come and worship you, to sing praises to you, to dive into your word and see what it has to say. Lord, we are astounded by the great love that you have shown us that we can be called your children. God, we, we love you, and we're so thankful for your grace and your mercy that you've shown us. Father, I pray that your word this morning can speak to our, our ears, our minds, our hearts, that your word can be active and working in us, that our hearts can be soft to your word, that we can be moldable and pliable, to be conformed more and more into the image of your Son. God, may you just speak to us this morning and may you use it to glorify yourself. We pray all this in your name, amen. So let's read Psalm 9. I'm going to read through the whole thing and then we'll slowly work through it chunk by chunk. So Psalm 9. For the choir director, according to Muslaban, or the tune of Death of a Son, a Davidic psalm, I will thank Yahweh with all my heart I will declare all your wonderful works. I will rejoice and boast about you. I will sing about your name, most high. When my enemies retreat, they stumble and perish before you, for you have upheld my just cause. You are seated on your throne as a righteous judge. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have erased their name forever and ever. The enemy has come to eternal ruin. You have uprooted the cities, And the very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He judges the world with righteousness. He executes judgment on the nations with fairness. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. Those who know your name trust in you because you have not abandoned those who seek you, Yahweh. Sing to the Lord who dwells in Zion, proclaim his deeds among the nations. For the one who seeks an accounting for bloodshed remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, Lord. Consider my affliction at the hands of those who hate me. Lift me up from the gates of death so that I may declare all your praises. I will rejoice in your salvation within the gates of daughter Zion. The nations have fallen into the pit they made. Their foot is caught in the net they have concealed. The Lord has revealed himself. He has executed justice, striking down the wicked by the work of their hands. Haggai on Salah. The wicked will return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the oppressed will not always be forgotten. The hope of the afflicted will not perish forever. Rise up, Lord. Do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your presence. Put terror in them, Lord. Let the nations know they are only men. Salah. So in our text this morning, David has written a psalm for the choir director to the tune of Muth Laban, or The Death of a Son, implying that it's a song to be sung. Now the tune Death of a Son, it doesn't have any further implications. David's not trying to make some meaningful connection with a song that they knew back in their time. It was mainly just to have that carry that same tune that was used for that song back in their own time. So in this song, written by David, we see a theme of rejoicing in God as judge and rescuer. Rejoicing in God as judge and rescuer. Celebrating his sovereignty, his rule and dominion over all nations for all time, and his judgment over those peoples and nations. So how does David start this psalm off that is written to be a song? With praising God right away, which is our first point for this morning. Rejoicing in God as judge and rescuer means that God deserves the praise of our entire being. God deserves the praise of our entire being. Let's read verses 1 and 2. David says, I will thank Yahweh with all my heart. I will declare all your wonderful works. I will rejoice and boast about you. I will sing about your name most high. In four lines and in four different ways, David praises God. He thanks him, He declares his wonderful works, he rejoices and boasts about him, and he sings about him. Now, I don't know about you all, but those first two verses are enough to convict me. We so naturally rejoice and boast in our favorite sports teams, our own accomplishments, a new politician being voted into office, our favorite fictional character from a book or from a movie. We boast about our own boyfriend or girlfriend or our spouse. Yet God remains in the background, sustaining our life each day and showing us mercy upon mercy. God is ruling and reigning as the king over creation. And we spend our days chanting and cheering for temporary things or people that will fade away or die. We are half-hearted people offering God the leftovers of our praise. So how do we praise God with all of our being? How do we praise God as David is praising him here? We see that David's two sources of praise are God's actions and God himself. God's actions and God himself. In the second line of verse 1, David says, I will declare all your wonderful works. In declaring all of God's wonderful works, both throughout history and in our own personal lives, we end up refreshing our memory to the thousands of other times God has done marvelous deeds. Taking the time to thank God and declare his wonderful works draws our mind to how faithful God has been. Which in turn, in turn leads us away from this half-hearted thanks to a genuine gratitude and a whole-hearted praise that nothing else in this world deserves or is worthy of. Paul tells his Philippian brothers and sisters in Christ in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I I will say it again, rejoice. Wait a second, Paul. Always? How could I possibly rejoice in God always? Well, if we simply took the time to reflect on God's goodness and his wonderful works, we'd always have something to rejoice in. Even in the worst of times, we can rejoice because God is still ruling and reigning as Lord over all. He is the one who holds us in his hands. This is why David can say things like Psalm 23 verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will what? Fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Or Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 55, "O death, where is your sting? Our lives as Christians should be marked by a daily rejoicing in the Lord, an overflow of the inward thankfulness that, oh, that can even overcome our own circumstances. So what or who do you praise? Is your praising of God half-hearted or with all of your heart? I encourage you to spend time dwelling on both God's actions and God himself, what God has done to rescue us from sin and death and dying in our place. Read over verses that remind you of God's goodness, God's grace, and God's faithfulness in your own life. Praise him for his wonderful works. Sing songs of joy to our great God. Don't let the temporary and lesser things of this world blind you from the greatness of our God. So David begins this psalm with rejoicing in the Lord with all his heart. And now we'll see why for him personally in verses three through eight, which takes us to our second point. God is our judge and king. God is our judge and king. Let's read verses three through eight. It says, when my enemies retreat, they stumble and perish before you. For you have upheld my just cause. You are seated on your throne as a righteous judge. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have erased their name forever and ever. The enemy has come to eternal ruin. You have uprooted the cities, and the very memory of them is perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He judges the world with righteousness. He executes judgment on the nations with fairness. Notice how many times David says you in this section. David is continuing this song of praise with a personal message to God himself. David, David's expressing that inner gratitude for God upholding him and for being seated on his throne as a righteous judge. In verses three and four, David first shows God's character and actions through his own personal experiences and then transitions in verses five through eight to God's character and actions for all the world. When David's enemies retreat, stumble, and perish, in verses 3 and 4, David doesn't take the glory for himself, but immediately directs the glory to God. And after reflecting on his own circumstances, he then jumps from his own experience to what it points to in the future, God's complete and total victory over his enemies and his everlasting reign as a just judge and king. So in this section, we get to learn about our God being our judge and king. We see that he upholds those that follow him. But what this section really describes is how God deals with those who are against him as his king. In verse 5, we see the progression of God as a righteous judge and king. First, rebuking the nations, warning them of their evil. And then next we see that God destroys the wicked, those who wanted nothing to do with God as their king. They would rather rebel and be sworn enemies than submit to God as their king. And ultimately, we see that God erases their name forever and ever. Mankind has no ultimate authority in the end. It is God and God alone who is king and judge over all. Verse 6 repeats the ideas in verse 5 by stating that the enemy has come to eternal ruin. You, God, have uprooted their cities, and the very memory of them has perished. Now, all this language that David has used to describe these coming events as if they had already happened, you notice that there in verses 5 and 6, he's using past tense of those verbs And these are known as prophetic perfects, a feature that's found in the Old Testament that is so certain of the fulfillment of coming events that they're described as if they already happened. David is so certain and confident in God's rule and authority that it's as if God's enemies have already been destroyed and erased. And then David compares the outcome of God's enemies with God himself in verse 7, saying he sits enthroned forever. God's throne will not be overcome by any person or power in this world. He sits enthroned for all eternity. And what does God do on his throne? We see in verse 8, he judges the world with righteousness, and he executes judgment on everyone in fairness. What better person to have on the throne than God who judges in perfect righteousness and fairness? Now it's crucial to remember is that because of our own sinful nature, we were all enemies of God at one point. We all were deserving of God's wrath and judgment as sinful enemies against God. But, as Romans 5.8 says, but God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not only do we have a God who is perfectly just, And right in his judgment, but we also have a God that graciously loves his people and wants to rescue them from their sinful lives. This takes us to our third point God is a refuge for those who trust in him. God is a refuge for those who trust in him. Let's read verses 9 through 12. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed a refuge in times of trouble. Those who know your name trust in you because you have not abandoned those who seek you, Yahweh. Sing to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Proclaim his deeds among the nations. For the one who seeks an accounting for bloodshed remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. So David transitions from God being the judge executing justice to the one Who is a refuge for the oppressed, one who will not abandon those who know him and trust in him. He does not forget their cry. The God who extinguishes the wicked is the same God who is a defense and refuge for those who trust in him in days of affliction and trouble. So now we come to the point of understanding that God is both just and merciful, He is both righteous and gracious. The God of the Old Testament is not just a wrathful God. He is also He's also a shelter for the weak and oppressed. In this psalm, we get the full picture of who God is. He's the righteous King and our great rescuer. As David says, He's our refuge, our safe place. In other Psalms, writers describe God as their stronghold, their fortress their rock, their shield. David's hope lies not in his own strength or abilities, but in the God who will be a refuge in the dark and oppressing times. David knows and states that God will not abandon those who seek him and even uses God's personal name, Yahweh, to direct these statements all personally back to God. Who wouldn't want Yahweh as their God and king? We see God's loving care for the oppressed and afflicted and that he does not forget their cry when seeking an account of bloodshed. God is faithful through the end. The one who will take care of business with those who have brought harm to his people. And what does this lead David to proclaim? In verse 11 he says, to sing to the Lord, to proclaim his deeds among the nations. We who have this almighty God as our refuge should be spreading the news of our great God and his wonderful works to all the nations, meaning those who don't believe in God. Many people in the world have false notions of who God is and would rather be enemies of God, not wanting him to rule and reign over their lives, even though he does. So we ought to be sharing the truth of our great God, telling people that while we were his enemies, he died for us. And with God on our side, as David says, he is our refuge. He will not abandon us. We are eternally safe and secure with him. May we be unafraid to share the truth and love of God with those around us, just as David did, so others may find refuge in him. This leads David to a personal prayer in the last part of this psalm, and it takes us to our fourth point. Pray for and trust in God's justice. Pray for and trust in God's justice. Let's read verses 13 through 16. Be gracious to me, Lord. Consider my affliction at the hands of those who hate me. Lift me up from the gates of death, so that I may declare all your praises. I will rejoice in your salvation within the gates of daughter Zion. The nations have fallen into the pit they made. Their foot is caught in the net they have concealed. The Lord has revealed himself. He has executed justice, striking down the wicked by the work of their hands. Higaon Salah. After David's proclamation of God being a refuge and one who does not abandon those who trust him, we see David has a personal prayer to God. Just after stating that God does not forget the cry of the afflicted, We see David asking God to consider the affliction he's facing. He asks God to be delivered from the gates of death and placed within the gates of Zion or Jerusalem so he may rejoice and declare God's greatness. David's current situation is not an ideal place to be. He's on death's doorstep, as he describes, the gates of death, surrounded by his foes, and he needs God to rescue him. He says, lift me up so that I may declare all your praises. David's prayer for God's deliverance is not for selfish reasons. It's not just for survival. He prays for this deliverance because he wants God to get glory for rescuing him from his enemies. David's motivation behind this prayer is not for survival, but for God's glory. He will rejoice and make known God's salvation within the great gates of Jerusalem. He wants everyone to hear and know about it, how amazing his God is. And David follows this cry for rescue with another confident statement of God's justice in verses 15 and 16, using the same style of prophetic perfects as he did in verses 5 and 6. He says in verse 15 that the nations against God will ultimately fall into their own traps those who persecuted the godly and caused suffering will in the end be their own executioners. David continues this thought in verse 16 by saying that God executes his justice by striking down the wicked by the work of their own hands. God is a just God who takes sin seriously. And as verse 16 says, he will reveal himself and execute justice. We can trust in God to be just, and the judge for those who have afflicted and hurt us. David finishes this section with the Hebrew words, hagayon Salah. Remember from a couple of the previous psalms we've gone through, that Salah is like a pause or a place to take a breath, and hagayon is a word that implies murmuring or meditation. David is asking his audience to ponder and meditate on the words that he just wrote. We reflect on these words because... A life without God does not end in rainbows and butterflies. Living a life apart from God is not how life was meant to be lived. David is splashing cold cold water on everyone's face, showing them the reality of life apart from God. He's asking them, are you an enemy of God? Or does your faith lie in God's salvation? That for David and us today is ultimately fulfilled through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Will your own evil and sin be your downfall? Will you be ensnared by the own work of your hands? Or do you trust in Christ covering the cost of your sin, giving you new life, and freeing you from the bondage of that sin? This takes us to our final point God has the final say. God has the final say. Let's read verses 17 through 20. The wicked will return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the oppressed will not always be forgotten. The hope of the afflicted will not perish forever. Rise up, Lord. Do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your presence. Put terror in them, Lord. Let the nations know they are only men. Salah. David makes it clear in these final verses that man has no place of power during the judgment of God. In verse 17, we see that the wicked and all the nations and people that forget God will return to Sheol or the grave or the dust from where they came. They will return there. They're not departing there for the first time. They will return there. David is saying that those who are against God were never truly living to begin with. A life without God is no life at all. As one commentator said, death is their native element. Death is their native element. And how true this is. Apart from Christ, we are dead in our sin. Turn to Ephesians 2 with me. and Keep a finger in Psalm 9 because we'll come back. But turn to Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 8. So we can see Paul elaborate on this idea a bit more of being dead in sin. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world according to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah, Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. Together with Christ Jesus, he also raised us up and seated us in the heavens so that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. It is by grace and grace alone that we are saved through faith. And as Paul says, all of this is a gift from God. The grace, the new life, the faith itself to believe is all a gift from God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but we have new life through Christ. And this brings us to the hope that's found in verse 18 of our psalm, turning back to Psalm 9 now. It says, for the oppressed will not always be forgotten. The hope of the afflicted will not perish forever. God is faithful to those who have put their faith in him. We will not be forgotten. Our hope will not perish because we have the almighty, eternal, and all powerful God as our refuge. He will come through on his promises. This hope of God's future day in judgment leads David to confidently declare in verses 19 and 20, rise up, Lord. Do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your presence. Put terror in them, Lord. Let the nations know they are only men. David knows the power and might of his God, and he is desiring God's justice and righteousness to put mankind in its place. As he says, Let the nations know they are only men. That gives me goosebumps. What a way to end a psalm. Do we have the same desire for God's justice and righteousness? Do we trust that he will be faithful through the end, that he will bring about justice against those that brought terror and pain to his own people? Do we believe God has the final say? If David has made one thing clear in this psalm, it is that God is the final judge for all of humanity. And that either brings unshakable peace or unsettling turmoil to our hearts. God as the judge either brings unshakable peace or unsettling turmoil to our hearts. Do you rejoice in God as judge and rescuer? Or have you set God as your enemy? I pray that if God is not your rescuer, you would know that life apart from God is no life at all, as Paul described in Ephesians 2. May you come to God as your rescuer, the one who has saved you from sin and death, so you can boldly say in view of God's promise, O death, where is your sting? I want to finish this morning with a prayer by reading Psalm 103. Yesterday as I was getting my sermon finished up, My wife, Remy, shared Psalm 103 with me, and I was like, this is amazing. And it fits really well with all that we covered this morning, so I think it would be a great way to finish in prayer. So if you'd like to turn there and follow along, feel free to do so. I'll pray us through this, and then we'll have a time to respond in singing and praying. Psalm 103. My soul, praise Yahweh, and all that is within me, praise his holy name. My soul, praise the Lord, and do not forget all his benefits. He forgives all your sin. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with faithful love and compassion. He satisfies you with goodness. Your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord executes acts of righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He revealed his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and rich in faithful love. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us as according to our offenses. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far Has he removed our transgressions from us? As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows what we are made of, remembering that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He blooms like a flower of the field. When the wind passes over it, it vanishes, and its place is no longer known. But from eternity to eternity, the Lord's faithful love is toward those who fear him and his righteousness toward the grandchildren of those who keep his covenant, who remember to observe his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, all his angels of great strength, who do his word obedient to his command. Praise the Lord, all his armies, his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, in all the places where he rules. My soul, praise Yahweh. Amen.